Um, Psalm 65, the, the end of verse 3, uh, I'd like to start where we left off with worship. Oh, praise the one who saved my soul and raised his life up from the dead, right? Uh, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Did we get that part? Jesus paid it all, and as a result, I owe him everything because sin that had left this stain on my life has been eradicated through the gift of God, the gift of grace. Um, the end of verse 3, uh, the psalmist writes, Iniquities prevail against me. As for our transgressions, what? You forgive them That's the grace of God at work. That's the gospel right here in the middle of Psalm or the beginning of Psalm 65. Um, now, Psalm 65 uh, is attributed to David. Um, however, if we take a look at, um, at the end of verse 4, what does it say? The end of verse 4 speaks of the temple, does it not? Let me ask you this. Was the temple built when David was uh, alive? No. In fact, David, David is uh, credited with the idea of, Lord, you deserve a house. Here I am living in a, in a, in a house of cedar and it's luxurious. And you, don't even, you're, you live in a tent. But the Lord said, David, you're not the one to build it. Solomon, your son, is the one to build it. First Kings uh, chapter 8, uh, verse 17 through 19. This is Solomon speaking of that, that fact. Now, it was in the heart of David, my father, to build a, a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father, David, whereas it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build a temple, but your son who will come from your body shall build the temple for my name. So there's some question here. Is the temple literal? If it is, if the mention of the temple is literal, then this can't be a Psalm of David. If, however, it is figurative, it certainly could be. And, and it is, it's not a, it's not a hill to die on okay it's it's not something that we need to get all worked up over but this is a, a psalm of of praise and thanksgiving um, and it's thought that perhaps given some of its references that it may have been a uh, psalm that was given at the, the uh, at the harvest festival or the feast of unleavened bread so we start out with praise to God our savior Verse 1, there will be silence before you and praise in Zion, O God, and you the, and to you the vow will be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you all men come. Iniquities prevail against me. As for our transgressions, you forgive them. Interesting, the, uh, the New American Standard Bible, how many of you are reading out of that tonight? 
Okay, that's a that's a, a a text that I actually prefer because it's it's very specific in being tied to the original language. However, there are there are reasons for other translations because they give a more quote unquote understandable sense of of the original language. Um, in the New King James Version, that. Um, that first verse we read, there will be silence before you and praise in Zion, O God. Some of you who were reading the New King James are saying, wait a second, that's not what that says. Because in the New King James, it says, praise is waiting for you, O God, in Zion. And the NIV, the New International Version says, praise awaits you, our God, in Zion. And the English Standard Version says, praise is due you, O God, in Zion. Now, why the different translations? Um, well, it has to do with, with this word that in the NASB, is, is uh, the New American Standard Bible, is translated silence. And it, it, um, it, is, it, it is also translated stillness or repose or waiting. Psalm 62 verses 1 and 2 says, My soul waits in silence for God only. And it's the same word. My soul waits in silence for God only. For him is, for in him is my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. Now, so we have this idea that praise waits for God. Um that there's silence involved. And the question comes to my mind right away is, uh, can praise be silent? I mean, seriously, when we think about praise, most of the time we think about volume, right? Um, yes, yeah. Hands lifted up, lifting up a shout, making lots of joyful noise, right? That's what we usually associate with praise. Um, Psalm 100, shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth, serve the Lord with gladness, come before him with joyful singing, and the word joyful is boisterous. But our silent awe before God, our silent awe before him is also praise and honor to him. Psalm 39, 1 through 5 says, I said, I will guard my ways that my that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth as with a muzzle while, while the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I refrained even from good. My sorrow grew worse. My heart was hot within me while I was musing the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. Lord, make me know my end. And what is the extent of my days? Let me know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days as, as handbreadths, and my lifetime is nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. Coming to terms with who we are is a big piece of the genesis or the beginning of our praise. We started out by asking the question, uh, or uh, yeah, asking the question, why, why do we have such a hard time praising 
uh, that, that God has taken away our guilt. Because some of us honestly don't believe we're that bad. Seriously. I mean, look at John. Who would think that this man would be anything but good? But he knows, and God knows, that apart from the grace of God, his righteousness is as filthy rags, stinky, filthy rags. And, and so coming to terms with who we are is a big piece of, of allowing praise to really rise up from within us. Um, genuine praise. Um, giving praise and honor to God includes being humbly mindful of our desperate condition before him even in comparison to our enemies. The Hebrew text seems to literally read, for you silence is for praise, O God of Zion. Silence is for praise. If this is correct, then the probable meaning is that the silence of resignation and surrender to God is the praise that is presented to God. Think about it. The silence that we have in understanding the depth of our depravity gives God opportunity to say, yay, you get it. One of the things I learned at this conference um, two weeks ago was the, the fact that um, well, the statement was made. One of the most damaging things that has been done to the church uh, at large today is how-to sermons. What? Wait a second. Learning how to be happy before God, learning how to have a great marriage, learning how to, to walk uprightly, learning how to do this and that as a Christian is really important, right? And being able to do the how-to steps helps us get there. Surely that's a good thing. But you begin to inspect that a little further. And what is at the core of that is that um, connecting with God is surely something you can do on your own. All you got to do is read a how-to book. And you can do things and be all right with God if you do these steps one through six. What's missing there is the, is the transformational truth of the gospel that only God can make us right. Only God can impart his righteousness to us. And that's the, that's the part that, that so easily easily gets, um, gets stripped away piece by piece as we become more and more and more self-sufficient. You see, self-sufficiency as a believer is the steps that lead us away from God, not to him. Verse 2. O oh, you who hear my prayer, to you all men come. Note God actually hears our prayer. It's not, just a, it's not just a religious ritual or a spiritual exercise. 
Some people would, would suggest that prayer and meditation is just a spiritual exercise. And it's good for you. Well, yeah, it's good for you. But prayer is actually heard by God. God Almighty. He hears. And so what's the, what's the next thing, the next expectation? If he hears, he also answers. Yeah. Now, how he answers is not to, be, not to be presumed. He might answer yes. He might answer no. He might answer, wait a while. But he answers because he actually hears. Now, he, the psalmist writes, to you all men come. You know, in the end, in the end, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Philippians chapter 2, the end of that, that glorious uh, New Testament hymn. And the truth is truly there, but we also see it in Isaiah 45. This is not, the, 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 the idea was not just a New Testament idea. It is an idea that's rooted in the history of Israel. Psalm, or excuse me, Isaiah chapter 45, Isaiah writes, as the Lord is speaking to him, I have sworn by myself. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Do you solemnly swear? Put your hand on the Bible. What's that mean? You swear by God? This is God. I have sworn by myself. There's no higher authority. The word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back. That to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say of me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. Men will come to him. Men will come to him because he is almighty. Signed, sealed, delivered, discussion over. Verse 3. The psalmist writes, iniquities prevail against me. As for our transgressions, you forgive them. Iniquities, we, we talked about this several weeks ago. There's, there's a difference between iniquities and transgressions. Remember we had that discussion? Iniquities are willful acts of wrongdoing. Willful acts of wrongdoing. Now, wait a second. The psalmist wouldn't be trapped up in that, would he? Willful acts of wrongdoing? Willfully doing wrong? Guilty. I'm with the psalmist. Guilty. Transgressions are acts of rebellion. A stand between the psalmist and the holy God. Acts of rebellion. Now, what is that? That is... That is uh, a uh, defiant child saying, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. And the child can be 45, 50, 60, 80, 90 years old. It doesn't matter. No, I'm not going to do it. That is rebellion. Now, he also says God forgives. The word forgive here, actually, some of your translations may use the word atone or atonement. And uh, because the word actually in Hebrew is to cover, uh, it, but it means to expiate as well, to appease, to cleanse, 
and surely to forgive. And there is, the, there is the connotation of mercy that is wrapped up in that. To pardon, to purge, to take away, to reconcile. That's all wrapped up in this word that gets translated in, in the New American Standard as forgive. And it signifies the removal of the barrier that is between God and humanity. And that barrier is sin, right? (laughs) And here again, what we have smack here at the beginning of Psalm 65 is the good news of the gospel. Because that's what Jesus did for us. He tore down the dividing wall. The veil was torn from top to bottom when he said, it is finished. And there is now access between humanity and God by virtue of the fact that Jesus pays the debt. He is the one who accomplishes forgiveness. It's not, it's not a simply tossing off, um, never mind. No, he paid the debt. And that's why forgiveness happens. I, I think too often we, we think too listfully about the cost of forgiveness. Now, verse 4, he goes on. And he, sa- he gets into this idea of blessed are the chosen. How blessed is the one whom you choose to bring near to you. To dwell in your courts. We will be satisfied with the goodness of your house. Your holy temple. The the verb for choose. This gets us into a lot of wrangling nowadays. Because it speaks of. God's sovereign election. Of his chosen people. Israel. Hmm. And it speaks of that collectively, but it also speaks of that election as individual, such as David himself, if David is the author of this this psalm. Um, God's initiative, it's God's initiative and his alone that enables us to come into his presence. Jesus said, to his disciples in John 15, you didn't choose me, I chose you. Wow, that, that, goes, that sets us on our haunches, doesn't it? Romans 8, 28, we all know that verse, right? How many of you can say that verse? We know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Guess what the next two verses say? For those he, whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. So God is in the business of choosing. Now, does he choose some and not others? That's the big question, right? That's the thing that gets us upset. How could it be that a just God would choose some and not others? 
You know what? The invitation is there. The choice is there for every single one. But the truth is that some, some do not say yes to the invitation. Regardless of the fact that they are chosen, and I'm, I choose you, come on in. Come on in. I want to make you my child. They say, no, I don't want to do that. Because the church is immoral. Because it's telling me I can't do certain things. Because I, I, I have to live a certain way and not, be, and not do what I want to do. I'm going to say no to that. Did God then give up his choice? No. But the invitation was refused. Verse 5 through 8. By awesome deeds you answer us in righteousness, O God of our salvation. You who are the trust of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest sea. Let me read that again. You who are the trust of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest sea, who establishes the mountains by his strength, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of peoples. They who dwell in the ends of the earth stand in awe of your signs. You make the dawn and the sunset Shout for joy. How many of you heard about the earthquake in California last week? What was it, 6.9? 7.1? There were three earthquakes or three and two aftershocks? Three different earthquakes. Wow, 6.9, 7.1, and 7.4, is that what you said? That's awesome. That's what the word awesome means. Does an earthquake strike a sense of dread or fear in you? I know it certainly would for me. You see things shaking all around and, and buildings coming down and, and the road going like this suddenly and oh, what is going on? That's what the word awesome means. Now we think, we think of the word awesome. We use it in our vernacular all the time. Ah, you're awesome. No, you're not awesome. The word awesome here has this connotation of, of, um, of dread associated with it, of might and power. And he says, by, by awesome deeds, you answer us in righteousness, O God of our salvation. By awesome deeds, these awesome, powerful awe-inspiring deeds, God answers us. You see, God is a God of action. He's not just a God of promises. He's, he's, uh, we, we know that uh, there are plenty of people around us, me included. I make promises that I cannot keep or that I simply don't keep out of neglect. 
But when God promises, he follows it with action, period. And if there is yet a promise that is not fulfilled, you can take it to the bank that it will be fulfilled. God delivers answers in action. Um, you answer us in righteousness. God's actions are in righteousness. Now, um, the word righteousness um, has the connotation of a relationship built into it. It is being rightly related to. So God answers, he answers with action that is built into a right relationship with him. You see, right and wrong are inextricably linked with God. There is a relationship there. Our present culture's moral assumptions aren't what they used to be. We talked about that earlier. And the result is an upside-down moral compass. Behaviors that ultimately harm others and destroy freedom are um, what the, uh, the Bible speaks about as sin. But in the short run, they appear to be restrictive. In the long run, however, they yield life. In the short run, they look like casting judgment upon people, declaring that they're wrong, uh, well, because they are. But somehow that doesn't go down well with us. But in the, in the long run, it yields life. We see the next phrase, O God of our salvation. Again, here we see the gospel message. God of our salvation. You see, Jesus himself is our salvation. It's not just what he did on the cross. It's the fact that he himself was the sacrifice that satisfies our debt. He himself. He himself is our salvation. He is the only adequate payment for our sin. You who are the trust of all the ends of the earth and the farthest sea. I love that phrase. It says that God is our only hope. He's the only hope of all the world. And verses six through eight, we see God's might on display. The forces of chaos in nature and among nations are completely under his sovereignty. Let's read verses nine through 13. Here we see God's provision for the earth. You visit the earth and cause it to overflow. You greatly enrich it. The stream of God is full of water. You prepare their grain, for thus you prepare the earth. Your water 
its furrows abundant. You water its furrows abundantly. You settle its ridges. You soften it with showers. You bless its growth. You have crowned the year with your bounty and your paths drip with fatness. The pastures of the wilderness drip and the hills gird themselves with rejoicing. The meadows are clothed with flocks and the valleys are covered with grain. They shout for joy. Yes, they sing. That's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Of absolute bounty. And that's precisely why this psalm is considered possibly a psalm that was, was uh, sung at the harvest festivals, at the uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread. That, that this is the picture that, that is drawn here. Verse 9 says, you visit the earth. And it's interesting to, to um, understand that the word visit isn't just showing up, knocking on the door and saying, hi, I'm here. It's, it's, uh, it has the connotation of being an overseer, being in charge of and caring for the earth. Um, I was, I've been once, I was told once that a, a good manager is one who walks around a lot. One who is, is invested in making certain that things are going well. Not only with the production, but with the people. And indeed, that's what God is doing. He visits the earth. He is he is here to care for and manage well. It is under his care. Now, it's interesting, if we, if we dig back into Genesis, what does God say to Adam in regard to his responsibility? He gives Adam the responsibility to care for the earth as well, doesn't he? To rule over the earth. And... In so doing, what he has done, okay, um, we know that Adam was formed by the hand of God from the earth, right? And his breath was from God himself. The word spirit is that word, breath. God breathed on him and he became a living being. We read elsewhere that God created us in his image. Not that we are God, far, far. Did I say far? Far from that, okay? But we are created in him, in his image. And therefore, he also partners with us with the things that he does. And that's part of our role, even as humanity, as individuals, is to care for God's creation, you visit the earth and you greatly enrich it. It's interesting, that word enrich. Um, when, when you think of enrich, um, there's two, two ways to go with that in my mind. Um, enriched flour, right? Packed with vitamins, all the stuff that they took out of it when they, in, when they bleached it, okay? They enrich it. They pack it full of the, 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 the nutrients that are necessary. 
The, uh, the other end of the spectrum is to enrich, means to um, collect a lot of stuff, to become wealthy. Uh, the Lord says he, uh, the psalmist says that God greatly enriches. I think it's both of those. He, he accumulates much, but he also deepens. And more specifically, he sets it up to grow into wholeness or fullness. Nine, uh, nine through 13. Uh, we see the systems of the earth at work. And I love that uh, because it speaks of God's great design of the earth. Um, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm fascinated by the, the fact that we are put together in such miraculous ways. Um, I... I I cut my hand this week uh, working on a project and it's already healed because God fashioned my body in such a way that it would repair itself. Isn't that amazing? What else does that? And, and I, I'm, I'm amazed sometimes um, that I'm able to, I don't know, but I, this, is, this is stupid insight into my crazy thinking. Every once in a while, I look at the fact that I can do two different things with my hands at once. Isn't that crazy? Amazing? And, and that, that every, single, every single detail matters. Um, have you ever, have you ever stubbed your toe? You don't even think about your toes until something like that happens, right? And then every thought is there. And the reality is, is that this toe that you thought was, well, you didn't even think about it's, it actually doesn't seem to matter much. It's not in our conscious thinking until Something happens that we injure it. And we soon discover, wow, that really does matter. That toe makes a difference in my, in my life. Um, working this week, I got a splinter in my hand. And, and all I could do is think, I can't do anything with this hand until I get that crazy splinter out of there. Because the nerve endings were all shouting, saying, something's wrong here. And if you don't deal with this, it's only going to get worse. God's amazing system that he's put together in creation is, is seen in the creation that we see around us. But it's seen even on the micro and the, the mini micro, if that's a word, level of, of creation. And it all works together. What we hear and see here then is that God is our Savior. We see that at the beginning of the psalm. And he is also our sustainer. 
He is the one who enables us to keep on living and not just living, but prospering. And this great, big, amazing, awesome, terrifying God reaches out to us in grace and mercy and provides for us the sacrifice for sin and the sustenance for the earth to function according to his design. Again, that is, it, it's, it's one of those, the psalm says, wow, this is God. He's not only, he's not only watching over all things, but he has me in his view. And he has you in his view. And that is the wonder also of the gospel itself, that God in all his greatness, that Christ did not count equality with God something to be held on to, to be clutched, to be, to be gripped as if it was his own. He did not count equality with God as something to be held on to, but emptied himself. Becoming obedient as a servant, even to the point of death, the death on a cross. And what kind of death is that? It's the death of a criminal. <coughs> aside, from, aside from the absolute horrific suffering that was there on the cross, it's the death of a criminal. And who is Jesus? He's the son of God. He is God Almighty himself. He is the definition of righteousness, being right related, rightly related to God. He's the definition of that. And he took on and bore the death of a criminal. Why? To save me and you. To pay for our sin. To be able to forgive unequivocally. We're not going to get to Psalm 66 tonight. Because if we did, we would just go over and we'd miss the opportunity to pray for one another. I would like very much for us tonight to spend the rest of our time together um, uh, in small groups like we've been doing. And We've been doing this for several weeks, and my hope is that we've become a little more comfortable with the idea of praying with one another and praying for one another. And tonight, I'd, I'd like for us to think back through some of the high points of what we've learned here in Psalm 65 and, and, um, and think about how that applies to you and what would be your prayer request in view of that? If we, if we unpack that a little bit, just, just to help us get started with that. Um, the idea of forgiveness is there, right? The New Testament 
the Apostle James, speaks of the value of confession being connected to forgiveness. And what does he say? If you confess your sins one to another, God is faithful and what? Just. Not only to forgive us of that sin, but to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is a bold ask, a big, bold ask of me, because we're not inclined to be very vulnerable with one another, right? But I'd, I'd like to ask you to dare step into the water of trusting one another just a little bit more tonight and saying there is, a, there is this in my life that I've been afraid to deal with. There is this peace in my life that I've, I know I need to lay down and I just haven't been able to do it. There is this sin that has got its grip on me and I need to walk away. I need to confess it and receive forgiveness. That's a practical thing that we can pray for one another with. Um, um, I think that that would be a big one. The other, the other uh, piece in this would be um, the idea of security in Christ. We, in verse 4, blessed is the one who you choose. God has chosen us. Some of us are, may not be real secure in that. Or we have a family member who doesn't really believe that or is afraid to walk in the fullness of what that could mean for them. The confidence of walking in the, in, in the security of the believer. That's an honest prayer that we can pray for one another. Um, uh, the, the idea of, of uh, bringing praise to God without inhibition. Understanding our need and praising God without inhibition. That is, that's an honest prayer. Um, so I, and there's anything else that, that the Lord may have spoken to you tonight. Uh, maybe you carried it in with you, actually. I'd like for us to spend some time. We have about 20 minutes. Spend some time praying for one another. I know this is risky. Okay? I understand that. Um, and if, if it's too risky, it's okay. Just pray for one another. Pray, pray, pray for another. You don't necessarily have to, to say, this is what I need prayer for. It's okay. But the idea is to learn to trust one another. That's what being the body of Christ is really all about. So we get to practice that tonight. Okay? Um, let's spend some time doing that. And um, I'll bring it to a close around 8 o'clock. If you need to leave before that, you can. If we want to stay beyond 8 o'clock, we're welcome, okay? Let me, let me just end this time with prayer. Lord, thank you for your grace with us, for the fact that your mercies are such that you indeed reach to us and provide forgiveness for us. We thank you that we've seen the gospel and the truth of it here, even in Psalm 65 tonight. We thank you as well, Lord, that your provision is such that, that um, uh, it, it lacks nothing. There is every detail covered. And tonight as we pray for one another, I pray that you'd also 
uh, help us encourage each other to walk deeper in our walk with you and to, to risk being closer to one another and allow your life to extend through us to one another. Thank you for your grace in that. In Jesus' name. Thank you.